Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our copies of God's Word and open them now to the book of Romans. We are studying verse by verse through the 16 chapters of Romans, and today we come to chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, our text today. The title of the message, Before You Say Amen. We're in a particular section of this epistle, which is uh, two full chapters in which the Apostle Paul lays out the case as a prosecuting attorney would against all of humanity. We are all guilty. We all deserve God's wrath and punishment for sin. And chapter one, Paul traced all of humanity's depravity from the Garden of Eden. And God, we said, uh, removed his uh, restrictions from humanity. And just as surely as water runs downhill, human depravity has gone lower and lower and lower. And he said that removal of restraint, as we saw last week, invariably leads to three circumstances, which he described first as lustful hearts. Humanity in all cultures are full of sexual immorality. Secondly, he said it leads to degrading passions, which include sexual, uh, homosexual behavior. And then thirdly, and uh, I think the lowest point of humanity is what he calls depraved minds, an absolute and utter inability to think logically or morally in any way. That is, all humankind could think about perpetually is how to sin. Now, the key we said last week is in verse 29 of chapter 1, and it's the word all, A-L-L, in which he describes humanity as being filled with all unrighteousness. And then he described multitude ways in which that manifests itself through particular sin. Theologians sometimes refer to the concept of man's total depravity. You might have heard it called radical corruption. It means the same thing. Simply means that as a result of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, every part of man, which includes his body, his emotions, his mind, have been corrupted by sin. So that's why I say the key to understanding this passage is the word all. That is, everyone is corrupted by sin and every part of everyone is corrupted by sin. Now, most people would agree that there are certain particularly bad characters in human history that should be punished with God's wrath. Maybe you have in mind Adolf Hitler or uh, Charles Manson or, or someone you view as particularly um, sinful. But uh, the scripture says there is wrath and punishment for sin, but it's not just for the people that we think are particularly sinful. By the way, a particular sinful person can be defined as someone just a little more sinful than you are, right? We believe all those people ought to be punished, but as we'll see today, uh, no one is off the hook and no one has an excuse. In fact, most people that you know, your neighbors, your coworkers, your teammates, if we were to ask them a pointed question, are you a good person? Almost all of them, history tells us, would say yes. I believe I'm a good person. And no, I don't believe I'm deserving of God's wrath. That was true in the Apostle Paul's day. That's true of our own day. So what Paul does, he lays out the case against all humanity. And in chapter one, having thoroughly proven that the pagan idolatrous world is guilty and deserving of God's wrath, he now turns his attention to the rest of us, those who had considered themselves moral or even religious. 
those who would claim they are good and upright and not deserving of wrath. And specifically, I believe Paul is addressing his own fellow countrymen, the Jews. A religious Jewish person of Paul's day would have heard chapter 1, Paul's indictment against the sexual immoral and the idolatrous and the homosexuals and those who are disobedient to parents, and they would have quickly shouted, Amen, Brother Paul. Preach at them, sinners. And though these people uh, certainly need to hear that message, maybe that was your reaction last week when we parted company as we looked at that kind of behavior in our own culture. Preach it, Pastor. Amen. Preach against the sexually immoral and the homosexuals. That's why today's sermon is titled, Before You Say Amen. Paul says, before you say amen to all of that, you need to understand that this includes you as well. Let's read now our text, Romans 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do not suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do that same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and mortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. You remember that the Apostle Paul is taking his time, a long time, to lay out the case against humanity. In fact, verse 18, chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20 is all one section in which he is pouring it on. Argument after argument, level after level to show that all stand guilty before God. This, of course, includes the idolatrous pagans of Rome it also includes the overtly religious and outwardly moral, including practicing Jews like himself. He used the term here, O man, which is a common way for Jewish people to interact with one another. And that's why I say I think he's specifically speaking to his fellow Jews. The first thing that Paul does in his argument is that he seeks to burst a couple of myths about those who practice morality, the myth of morality. Verse 1, he says, Therefore, you have no excuse, you foolish person, every one of you who passes judgment. That is a person who looks at the pagan world and says, yes, those people are guilty of death. You also have no excuse. You also are guilty before God. And so he uses that transitional word, therefore, which means in light of the fact, in view of what I've said so far, it's clear that you also are guilty. Because he says everyone knows that those who practices these sins that he listed in verse 32 are worthy of death. And in fact, the moral person, the religious person says, yes, I agree with that. They say, amen, yes. Those people who practice such sins are worthy of God's wrath. And so myth number one that Paul explodes is that God won't judge my sin. That God's judgment is for the other person's sin. 
Paul says, you're being foolish. He says, you prove that you know right from wrong. You prove you know God is just in punishing these sins by declaring judgment on others who practice them. But they say, well, wait, Paul, we don't practice those sins. Well, he follows up with the second myth that he burst, and that is that God will not judge sins of the heart, only sins of the hand. Many of the Jewish people could rightly say, no, we don't practice overtly adultery or homosexual behavior, and we give lip service to honoring our parents. But here's the problem, and they should have known it because every Jewish person is taught in Hebrew school this verse, man judges on outward appearance, but God judges where? The heart. It's what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount that made them so angry, Matthew 5, 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say unto you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has committed adultery with her in his heart. So God will judge your sin, moral person, religious person, and yes, God judges sins of the heart just as he judges sins of action. And this, I believe, friends, is the stumbling block that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Remember when he talked about the preaching of the cross, the simple, essential gospel, that there are two fundamental responses to it. Many of the Greeks heard the simple message of the gospel and said, that's foolishness. It's laughable that God would condescend to take on human flesh and become one of us and die in the place of a sinner. But the Jews had a different take, by and large. To them, the gospel message was a stumbling block. And what they tripped over was this, that they had to repent of sins just as the pagan did. That they couldn't come to God and show them their credentials or their genetic pedigree. Because many of them had begun to believe another myth that had perpetuated throughout the Jewish world, and that is that salvation was by genetics. By virtue of them being genetically Jewish, they had nothing to fear, they thought. In fact, there's a very specific myth floating around the ancient Jewish world that Father Abraham sat in a chair outside the gates of hell and would never allow a Jewish person to enter. And so they never had to fear God's judgment. They also, many of them, believed in salvation by morality by keeping the law better than my neighbor, then God will be impressed and I'll go to heaven. Of course, all of these verses are leading to Romans 3.20, which says, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. That's the point. Not one person, Jew or Gentile, will ever go to heaven because they were moral. So Paul explodes these myths that God won't judge my sin or God only judges sins of the hand, not sins of the heart or salvations by genetics or or morality. Paul wasn't the only one, by the way. This is the consistent message of God's prophets through the ages. John the Baptist, for example, went out into the wilderness and all Judea was coming out to him and the Pharisees didn't like it because he was stealing their thunder and they sent people out to spy on John the Baptist and he called them a brood of vipers, a den of snakes, because God knew their heart. They pretended to be one thing by all the time being another. And he said, don't say that we are children of Abraham because God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these rocks over here. The only way is through faith and repentance. And almost all religions in the world, every ism, Mormonism, Judaism, Islam, almost all these religions have this thing in common. It's based on the myth that salvation is by either morality or genetics, or by cultural conformity. 
That is, if I can be the best Muslim I can be, or I can be the best Jew I can be, or I can be the best Mormon that I can be, then God is bound to let me into heaven. And Paul says, no, not so. All of us stand guilty before God. Secondly, those of us who grew up in a religious setting, who know the Ten Commandments, who have the Bible, have an especially great burden, and it is the danger of despising. Look at verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? To think lightly of something is to devalue it, to put it down, to look upon it and say that has no value, it's worthless. And the three attributes of God that a person who is self-righteous, who thinks they are moral enough to enter heaven, the three attributes of God that they devalue are his kindness, his restraint, and his patience which are synonyms of one another. His kindness uh, means his goodness. In fact, some of your translations in place of kindness likely say goodness. It's uh, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament is hesed, his loving kindness. It's who he is. His nature is to be good and benevolent to all people. Believer or not, it reigns on the just and the unjust. He's also a God of great restraint. You know how I know God's a God of great restraint? Because the last time I sinned, he didn't kill me on the spot. That's how I know. You too. He is forbearing. He is patient, thirdly. He is long-suffering. He puts up a lot from humans before he judges them. But unfortunately, what was designed to lead us to recognize our sinfulness and lead us to repentance, that is the goodness, the benevolence, and the long-suffering nature of God, oftentimes has the opposite effect. When we enjoy good health and a good quality of life and blessings from the Lord, rather than seeing that we don't deserve that and looking up to give him thanks, human nature is to believe we deserve those good things and to become self-congratulatory and self-righteous. And it happens over and over again. And sometimes it becomes obvious, even from preachers. It's like a very famous pastor in our own state loves to tell the story about he and his wife were going to the mall one day and they went to the parking lot down in Houston. It was absolutely packed. Not an empty parking space in the place. They drove around, made one loop and they came back to the front row 10 feet from the entrance and lo and behold, the best parking space in the place was open. And he turned in and he pronounced this was nothing but the favor of God on his life. No. No, that's not the purpose of God's blessings and goodness is to pat ourselves on the back. It's to lead us to repentance, to show us we don't deserve it. In reality, when we receive God's goodness and react with thanklessness and pride, what Paul says we're actually doing is accruing judgment for the future. Every time we sin and God doesn't strike us dead and we don't repent, what we're doing is we're making a deposit into eschatological judgment. Look around and I see many of you who have been very meticulous through your working career. That every time you had a payday, you took a percentage of that and you put it in a 401k or 403b or a Roth IRA. And every single contribution seemed pretty insignificant. But given enough time and given enough consistency, you have a nest egg and you got to the point where you could retire. Well, God's eschatological wrath is not that different Rather than God sweeping our sin under the rug and pretending it didn't happen, 
when we sin and don't repent, it accrues. That wrath, there's more of it. Now remember, there's two kinds of God's wrath we've seen in these first two chapters. Chapter 1, verse 18, he speaks of present wrath. God's ongoing fixed disposition of anger against all sin all the time. But there's also coming a future or eschatological day of judgment in which the books will be opened and that every thought we've ever thought, every word we've ever said, every action we've ever committed is going to be judged by God. And he is a good judge. And he doesn't forget. God's wrath tells us there's a payday someday. We call that retributive justice. We get what we deserve. Now, if we had an earthly judge, sometimes they don't have a punishment that fits the crime. Let's say you roll through a four-way stop and you go before the judge and he gives you 20 years to life in the prison. We'd cry out, that's unjust. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. Or on the other end of the continuum, they say there's a, a mass murderer and he goes before the judge and he gets six months probation, free on his own recognizance. We'd say, that's unjust. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. Here's the thing about God. Not only does he know everything about us, he knows every sin we've ever committed. The punishment's gonna fit the crime. He is a good and a righteous judge. Dr. R.G. Lee was a pastor in a foregone day from Memphis, Tennessee. And he preached one sermon over a thousand times all over the country. And the title of that sermon was Payday Someday. I listened to it by internet again this week. I've listened to it many times. And he takes the passage in the Old Testament where wicked King Ahab and his even wickeder wife, if I can say it that way, Jezebel, conspired to steal a piece of property from one of God's choice servants. And all the intricacies and details that went into that, but the point was at the end of the day, they got their comeuppance. God didn't forget. He judged their sin. The punishment fit the crime. But that's not just true of the most wicked person you know. The word Jezebel has become synonymous with extraordinarily wicked people. But it's not just Jezebel that has a payday coming. It's the nicest, most moral person you know who does not bow their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's Paul's point. And that's my third point is seeing verse 6, the universality of judgment. Verse 6 says, God will repay each person according to his deeds. He will repay. That is a moral certainty. He's not like that imaginary grandfather figure so many people have in their mind of what God's like, shuffling about, forgetful, doting on the the grandchildren, when they come over and break the vase, sweeps it under the rug and says, oh, don't worry about it. That's not the God of the Bible. He will repay according to one's deeds. The punishment will fit the crime. Note the phrase, each person. That is without exception, religious or irreligious, to the Jew first and also to the Greek from everyone. That's everyone from Paul's perspective. Now, um, am I making this up? Is this something that's only in the Pauline literature? No. Listen to Hebrews 9.27. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after that judgment. 2 Timothy 4.1. Paul writes to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Paul won't even let the dead get off the hook. You don't get out of God's judgment by dying as so many people believe that you just go out of existence 
Paul told Timothy that one day God's going to judge the living and the dead. What does he mean by that? Well, we're told more detail about that in John's Revelation, chapter 20. John is given that incredible privilege of seeing the future, how it all ends. Told to write down what he saw. Here's one of the things that he saw in Revelation 20, 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books, note that, plural, books, were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. The point is this, no one will escape God's judgment. It is universal in scope. But the conclusion of God's judgments will vary wildly from person to person, experience to experience. So finally, let's see the contrast of conclusions beginning in verse 7. Here are the conclusions that will happen on the day of judgment. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Here is the contrasting judgment of the righteous and the judgment of the wicked. Now, we love to divide one another up and put one another in groups based on height and weight and skin tone and hair or no hair or color of hair, uh, color of eyes, educational level, socioeconomic status. The Bible's not like that. Over and over, Old New Testament, we find two groups of people. That goes by different names. In Psalm 1, King David contrasted the righteous and the wicked. That's what we see here with Paul. Jesus talked about the separation at the judgment between the sheep and the goats. We talk about the saved and the lost. We talk about the unregenerate and those who are born again. Any way you want to say it, it's still just two groups of people. Paul is describing the judgment of those two groups of people in the eschatological future. The righteous are defined by those who persevere in doing good and who are seeking glory, honor, and immortality. Now, if you're taking notes, I just write a big T at the top of the page and put the righteous on one side and the wicked on the other, and we're going to contrast these two groups. Note that the righteous seek something different than the unrighteous. They seek glory. That is the glory of God. They seek honor. They, they, hear, they want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And ultimately, they want immortality. They want eternal life. They're going to receive it if there's evidence of that in the books. Now, you'll note here, though, he says many times, and John says it several times, too, in Revelation 20, that we're going to be judged on the criteria of our deeds. And some of you lifelong Baptists are cringing right now. <laughs> Now, wait a second, Pastor. You always teach us that salvation is by grace through faith alone, not as a result of works. That's right. Those two things are not in collision course here. Both are true. We are saved by grace alone, but we will be judged based on our deeds. How? We don't do good deeds to get saved. We do, do, good, we do good deeds because we are saved, right? 
Our works are the evidence of our salvation. That's what James is saying when he says, faith without works is dead. True saving faith will always manifest itself in a changed life. And the assurance of salvation has always been not that you walked some aisle and filled out a card in a Baptist church or you were baptized by immersion or by some other means in a different faith tradition. The only assurance of salvation we find in the Bible is a changed life. Someone whose attitude towards sin is altered and changed. I was walking in this direction. I was granted repentance and faith and I began walking in this direction. Not perfectly. Some have taken these verses say the only people that get to heaven are those who Quit sinning totally. Well, there won't be anybody in heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about the trajectory of your life. Are you consistently seeking glory and honor and immortality? That's what he means when he says the books will be open. They won't lie. They'll tell us the truth. And we can fool one another. But we can't fool the Lord. He knows all. Salvation is by grace alone, but the proof of our faith is perseverance in seeking glory, honor, and immortality. In fact, the Bible says it this way. We can even recognize one another because by their fruit you will what? Know them. And the reward of a person who lives their life like that, he says, is simple. It's eternal life. It's heaven. Then he gets to verse 8. And now you have the other side of that ledger. He says, but... To those who are selfishly ambitious, that is, they are self-centered, their ambition is to glorify themselves and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will receive wrath and indignation. Those are two words that mean the same way. It's God's rightful, just anger. Their reward, and remember, all of us are going to get what we deserve, wrath and indignation. Then he repeats that contrast in reverse order, simply reiterating the same truth. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. Remember the Jews were saying, we don't have to worry about it. We're Jewish. He's saying, you're going to be first in line, as we'll find out later, because they had the truth. They had God's revealed word, the Bible. But also the Greek, he's not letting them off the hook. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for there's no partiality with God. Underline verse 11. That's our title next week. There's no partiality with God. That's really what he's getting to. You can't hide behind your Jewishness if you have a wicked heart. You can't hide behind your education or your morality if you have a wicked heart because God's going to judge that too. Heavy stuff. Last week was heavy, wasn't it? We talked about homosexuality. And I said last week before we left, I want to leave you with some hope. And so we looked at the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son who said to his father, I can't wait for you to die. Give me my inheritance now. And the father graciously gave him what he wanted. And he went off and he blew it. He wasted it. He ended up in poverty, eating out of a pig trough. And he came home and threw himself upon the father's mercy. And the father received him and welcomed him home as a son and forgave him as a picture of God's willingness and readiness to forgive any sinner. There's hope there. But that's for the person who's out there in open, heinous sin. What about the person who comes to church every week? What about the person who doesn't cheat on their taxes, at least publicly? 
What about the person who doesn't commit adultery, but their heart is full of lust? What about those people? There's hope for them too. Jesus told another parable, and it's in Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, he tells his disciples about two men who went down to pray. It goes like this. Now, he also told this parable to some people. Hear this. He told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. I think that's apropos for today's message. He's preaching this parable to people who trusted that they were okay with God, but they looked down on others who they viewed were worthy of God's judgment. In fact, when they heard someone say, God's going to send the homosexual to hell, God's going to send the adulterer to hell, they said, Amen. That's what those people deserved. But they trusted that themselves were righteous. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and began praying this in regard to himself. By the way, don't begin your prayer in regard to yourself. Begin your prayer in regard to God. But this is what he said about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, crooks, adulterers, even that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all I get. But the tax collector, the guy that was an outcast of society, the guy that was an open sinner, stood some distance away, was even unwilling to raise his eyes towards heaven. He was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man, the one that beat his chest and recognized he was not just a sinner, he was the sinner, went to his house justified, right with God, rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the way to heaven. It's not self-exaltation. It's not self-righteousness. It's not reaching some level of Morality, you think, exceeds your neighbors. It's humility. It's contrition. It's repentance and faith. Don't forget where all this is heading to Romans 3.23, that by the works of the law will no flesh be justified. No flesh. That includes you. That includes me. Who has been in church at least three times a week for the 50 years I've been alive. We don't go to heaven by going to church. We don't go to heaven by trying our best to keep the Ten Commandments. We don't go to heaven by tithing or fasting or in any other way, but through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And the evidence that we truly have been saved and born again and are on our way to heaven are found in those books, the books of our lives, which tell our thoughts, our words, and our actions. We don't go to heaven because of our deeds or their lack thereof. We go to heaven because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is imputed to us by faith. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord and his righteousness will be saved. But here's the warning. If you can come to church week after week and hear that message of salvation by grace alone and never bow your knee and think that that's for worse sinners than me, that God won't judge my sin because my sins are sins of the heart, not sins of deeds, you're wrong. And you're going to hear one day what Jesus says many people are going to hear who are religious, 
who think they're right with God, depart from me, you cursed and workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. He never knew us. No, the books tell the story. Our heart never was changed. We continue to love sin. We continue to want the spotlight for ourselves. We don't want to glorify him. And friends, if you're in that category today, or if you're in the category of an open sinner, the way to heaven is one way. Jesus said of himself in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. By faith in what Christ accomplished in your place on the cross, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his glorious resurrection. If you'll believe in that, it doesn't matter if you are a serial killer or you are an altar boy. When you die, you'll go to heaven where Jesus is. Let's pray and thank him for that glorious truth. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. It's a hard word to hear, Lord, because we are conditioned to think that God is impressed with our righteousness. Apostle Paul says our righteousness is as filthy rags compared to him. Worthless. Every time we sin and he doesn't judge us immediately, we won't repent. He says we're storing up, we're accruing, we're saving wrath for the future. And Lord, I don't know what that's going to be like, but I don't want to be a part of it. I shudder to think because you always do what is right. You know everything we've said, done, thought. And the punishment will always fit the crime. Father, I don't want anyone I know to experience that kind of judgment. I pray that anyone, the sound of my voice at home, watching by internet or in one of the other rooms or in this room, Lord, that is convicted right now of their personal guilt, would not push that down, push that down, but instead they would admit and confess that your assessment of them is right. They are a sinner. They deserve your wrath. But they plead for your mercy. You are a God of mercy. You're long-suffering and kind. Lord, I pray that goodness would lead us to repentance, not to uh, becoming hard-hearted. Lord, I pray for that one who is out in the world living in open rebellion. Draw them to yourself. Lord, I pray for the one who's here every Sunday in this church, well-dressed and well-behaved, whose heart is far from you. I pray you grant them faith and repentance. Lord, would you send revival in our city, land, country, world, that we would see evidence of conversions of all kinds of people, the religious and the irreligious, not for our glory, but for the glory of Jesus Christ who deserves it. And we pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.